I'm going to read from Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves who promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. This is God's word. Let me add my welcome to Giles. I'm Simon Pedley, one of the assistant ministers here. And uh, we're starting a little three-week series in the book of Habakkuk. It's three short chapters. Uh, We're beginning there this week. There's a bit of a debate about it. Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Things get quite heated about that. Um, I'm a Habakkuk guy. If you're a Habakkuk guy, I'm sorry. Uh, Try to live with it. Um, Now, we'll get to the anguished words in a bit. Before we do, uh, I want to start with a little bit of levity to prepare us uh, with a little experiment. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to poke the person sitting next to you in the arm. Um, Now, I know that's an odd request. Just as you'd relaxed into listening to a sermon, um, I hope you'll indulge me. Before you do the poking, just uh, check around you for broken arms and things like that. Uh, I don't know if Simon Hallett's here. If you're sitting next to him, but maybe don't do that. Um, be prepared to uh, administer a very small amount of pain. Not a lot, just a, just a little tiny bit. Uh, are you ready? Uh, <laughs> after three, one, two, three, and poke. Okay, that's, that's over and done with. You, you can relax now. Um, let me ask, did that, did that little tiny bit of suffering cause anyone to give up their faith? Uh, <laughs> did anyone conclude from, from that poke that uh, there's no God in heaven, uh, or if there is, he doesn't care? Uh, before, 
just now, you thought, yes, yes, God's there, he loves me. But now you've been poked. (laughs) I think not. Uh, It's a very common people to cite uh, suffering as a reason to reject God, or at least to cry out to him and question him. Uh, One of the courses we run here is called Christianity Explored, and at the beginning of that, we tend to ask people uh, if they had one question to put to God, what would it be? And one of the most common answers is, God, why do you allow suffering? People know that Christians believe in a God who created this world, who is good and all-powerful, who works all things according to his will. But this world that we say he created contains suffering and injustice, things that raise big questions about God. If he's good, surely he would remove suffering and injustice from the world. And if he's all-powerful, surely he'd be able to remove suffering and injustice from the world. And the fact that he doesn't do so suggests to some people that he's either not good or not powerful or perhaps just not there at all. That's the classic argument, that suffering proves that an all-good, all-powerful creator God cannot exist. It's an argument that you'll find used at a variety of levels, from uh, academia in philosophy, uh, but also at a very personal, very private level, by people whose individual experience of suffering has led them to the same conclusions. But here's the thing. The amount, the extent of suffering seems to be significant. Nobody just gets poked in the arm like we did this morning and thinks, well, before that I thought there was a God, but now, no. Uh, We don't potter along through life happily trusting in God until one day we stub our toe and uh, then chuck our faith out of the window. Minor injuries and illnesses, it seems, we can cope with. Uh, Even sometimes quite major ones. We're aware, perhaps, if we've studied the Bible uh, a bit, of verses like Romans 5.3, which tell us that we can rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And uh, Romans 8.28 tells us that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. And James 1.3 tells us that God uses our suffering to test our faith in order to make us mature and complete. And we can kind of get that when the suffering is limited. God can use a small amount of suffering for our good, we think. Yes, it was terrible. I was laid up in bed for a week with man flu. It was awful. And it gave me time to reflect and spend time with the Lord. And now I feel more humble and less materialistic. And God has taught me to rejoice in my sufferings. But when people cite suffering against God, it isn't the small things that they're talking about. It's the big things. There's something about the scale, the severity of suffering that makes it harder and harder to cope with and harder and harder to reconcile with our belief in God's goodness. People don't talk about their sore throat as evidence against God, but they do talk about throat cancer. People don't talk about their broken leg as evidence against God. They talk about paralyzed legs and arms and torsos. People don't talk about one bad meal that made them sick. They talk about thousands killed by contaminated water. They don't talk about one flooded basement. They talk about a tsunami 
in Asia that killed a quarter of a million, or an earthquake in Haiti that killed 230,000. They don't talk about a minor argument with their brother. They talk about global disagreements that cause wars and terrorism and suicide bombers and 9-11. See, the bigger the scale of suffering, the longer it goes on, the harder it is to cope with and reconcile with God's goodness. A couple of years ago, I was involved in a mission uh, in Clacton-on-Sea, a fascinating place, uh, where almost everyone is retired. And uh, we spent a bit of time knocking on doors and uh, chatting to people about their beliefs. And the conversations were very interesting because uh, British people of that generation tend to have some kind of church background. So we had a chance to ask a lot of people why they walked away from that church experience why they chose to leave Christianity behind. And there were various reasons, and many had clearly never actually understood the gospel for themselves. But there was one sad, predictable answer that came up again and again. Too much suffering. Some of them talked about living through the horrors of World War II. Some of them talked about friends or family members or spouses or children who'd been killed in accidents or contracted fatal diseases, or lived with debilitating illness. Some of them themselves had lived through that kind of thing, decades of agony or sorrow or heartache. It wasn't just a little bit of suffering. It was a vast amount. For those Clacton pensioners, it was more than they felt God should have allowed. And so they turned away in bitterness or sadness or just disappointed unbelief. Now, we find in Habakkuk the same issue, not just suffering, but the extent of suffering. So in verse 2, when Habakkuk cries out, this is what he says. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry to you, violence, but you do not save? This is not just suffering, this is prolonged suffering. Habakkuk has called for help. He has cried out to God repeatedly, but there seems to be no answer. The circumstances remain the same. The suffering continues. The injustice remains. There is a terrible silence from God. Over a long period of time, he's prayed and prayed. And finally, in exasperation, his prayer becomes what the NIV translators uh, have called a complaint in that title they've given to it. How long, O Lord, Habakkuk says, this is unbearable. Why don't you answer my prayers? Why don't you relieve this suffering? Your silence, it's terrible, Lord. And I don't understand. I don't understand why you would leave us in this state. Now, it's worth knowing something about Habakkuk's setting in history so we can get a feel for what was going on, what he was going through. We know very little about him apart from what is said in this book. Uh, So we know from verse 1 that he was a prophet, someone who brought messages from God to the people, and that this was an oracle that he received, which is interesting, isn't it? This, This book clearly contains Habakkuk's personal experience of crying out to God and uh, struggling to receive answers. But the whole book, including his experience and his agonized prayers, is given to him as a message from God to the people. So even as he voices this complaint to God, Habakkuk is voicing a message from God to his people. 
Now that is something quite remarkable in itself, isn't it? This kind of questioning, even complaining prayer, is valid, it would seem. He's given God's stamp of approval here. His permission. (laughs) Something given by God to Habakkuk. We'll talk in a moment about how God invites us to engage in in prayer with him. Prayers of confusion and questioning and anguish in times of terrible suffering. But what more do we know about Habakkuk's circumstances? Uh, He describes uh, in verse 2 a time of violence and in verse 3 a time of injustice, of wrong, of destruction, violence, strife, conflict. A time in verse 4 when the law is paralyzed, where justice never prevails, where the wicked hem in the righteous and justice is perverted. And we can pin down pretty precisely whereabouts in history Habakkuk was when he was saying this. Uh, In verse 6, God says he is raising up the Babylonians. Now, the Babylonians invaded the nation of Judah, the last remaining part of what had been the nation of Israel, towards the end of the 6th century BC. And uh, before that invasion of the Babylonian Empire... Society in Judah had degenerated in a a downward spiral. The last good king, Josiah, had died. And his sons, one by one, occupied the throne. And their reigns were marked by oppression and injustice. Uh, Here's what the prophet Jeremiah said about one of them, uh, King Jehoiakim. I'm just going to read that out for us. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his countrymen work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Does not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes, King Jehoiakim, your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood and on oppression and extortion. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother. Alas, my sister. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master. Alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. King Jehoiakim was a Nikolai Ceausescu. Remember him, the the last communist leader of Romania, who built the most extraordinary, extravagant palaces for himself while exhausting his country's economy and driving his people into poverty. Jehoiakim was a Saddam Hussein presiding over a regime of violence and persecution and extortion. He was a figure whose overthrow would lead not to mourning but to celebration. And he was the king of Judah, supposedly the king of God's people. So Habakkuk was crying out on behalf of an oppressed people who had seen their country descend into violence and injustice over a period of many years. And despite all their anguished prayers, God had been silent. 
Now, Habakkuk's experience may have been more personal as well. It seems that prophets were singled out for a particular mistreatment under Jehoiakim's reign. Uh, We read elsewhere in Jeremiah that uh, a prophet named Uriah was sentenced to death for challenging the king. And uh, so keen was Jehoiakim to kill him that soldiers were sent to search for him in Egypt where he'd fled to bring this prophet back and have him murdered in front of the king. Jeremiah himself was almost put to death by Jehoiakim's officials before some elders intervened on his behalf. So perhaps Habakkuk was similarly persecuted as a prophet and felt like a member of an endangered species as the regime refused to tolerate people like himself. Now, if we're looking for the closest parallels to Habakkuk's experience today, I guess we would look to believers living under similarly oppressive regimes, persecuting regimes. So uh, in North Korea... Information is pretty hard to come by, but uh, of the estimated half a million Christians there, one in five is thought to be in a prison camp where there is torture and starvation, where many die every year, where it is estimated that somewhere between a few hundred to even as many as 10,000 die or are killed each year. No one really knows. But the policy there of religious suppression was put in place in 1948. That's 62 years and counting. Can you imagine the prayers of our North Korean brothers and sisters? Can you imagine them crying out, How long, O Lord, must I call out for help? But you do not listen. Or cry to you violence, but you do not save. In Pakistan, as in many Muslim countries, there's a a death penalty for blasphemy against Muhammad, which is regularly used against Christians. And yet, there's no penalty at all for false accusation of blasphemy. In July this year, two brothers, uh, Rashid and Sajid Emmanuel, were accused of writing a a blasphemous pamphlet, which uh, apparently defiled Muhammad, and they were dragged before a court. The police announced that there was no evidence to convict them. Uh, The handwriting on the pamphlet wasn't even theirs. But a mob of thousands had gathered outside the court to demand the death penalty, and while they were being transported to jail, they were killed by gunmen who then fled the scene. In the same country last year, a minor argument between two drivers led to the firebombing of hundreds of Christian homes and acid thrown into people's faces. Can you imagine the prayers of our Pakistani brothers and sisters. How long, O Lord, must I cry out for help, but you do not listen? Or cry to you violence, but you do not save? But we can broaden the canvas, can't we, to include not just persecution, but all kinds of suffering. The two are connected, in a sense. There's a sense in which our our entire world is suffering from the oppressive rule of Satan. He's called in the New Testament the prince of this world for this time. And the effects of his reign are, are terrible. The agonized prayer of how long, O Lord, is on the lips of suffering believers the world over. The cancer sufferer who goes through months of chemo and radiotherapy, even goes into remission, only to be told that the tumors have returned. 
and their friends and family who watch in horror, feeling utterly helpless. The hard worker who finds themselves long-term unemployed while they see people around them who are lazy and yet have jobs and incomes. The parents who watch in agony as their children rebel and make decisions that destroy their lives. The couples who long to have children and yet quietly despair when pregnancy turns out to be impossible or miscarriages multiply. The chair-bound sufferer from a muscle-wasting illness or paralysis resulting from an accident. Yeah, I could go on and on and on, couldn't I? We could fill the sermon with example after example after example of ways to suffer, so many possibilities to suffer in deep, profoundly unbearable ways. You can add to that list in your own mind, things that you've been through, things that you've seen family and friends go through, things that you might be going through now. And Habakkuk voices the agony of all of these people. Maybe your agony today. The agony of being apparently met by a terrible silence from God. The feeling that your prayers are hitting a ceiling and bouncing back, unanswered, over and over and over again. Fears about the future. I don't know how, long, how much longer I can do this, God. I don't know how much longer I can keep trusting you. I'm trying. I really am, but I can't make sense of this silence. I don't understand why you would leave me in this suffering. I just can't see your purpose in it, Lord. I just don't understand. Look how personally Habakkuk addresses God in verse 2. He says, I call for help, but you... Do not listen. I cry out to you. You do not save. Verse 3. You make me look at injustice. You tolerate wrong. Violence and destruction are before me. Habakkuk is directly confronting God and comparing his own horrified reaction to this injustice with God's apparent lack of reaction. Habakkuk is saying to God, look, you're making me look at all of this suffering. It's staring me in the face. It's right before me. And I can't bear it. It's intolerable to me. And what I don't understand, God, is why it's tolerable to you. God, do you see what I see? Because if you do, how can you bear it? How can you tolerate it? How is a good God, a powerful God, can you possibly justify remaining silent while tsunamis and earthquakes wipe out thousands? How can you fold your arms and watch while children starve? How can you bear to sit back and do nothing while my parent, my spouse, my child, me, is in so much pain? God, your silence is unbearable. It is terrible. For Habakkuk, into the terrible silence, God finally spoke. Verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Well, catch your breath. Uh, Maybe Habakkuk was startled 
after praying for so long without any answer. Here is God finally responding, finally giving an account of himself. God says, look and watch, I'm going to do something. This, on the face of it, is massive reassurance. God may have been silent, but he has been listening. None of Habakkuk's prayers were wasted. None of the Pakistani or North Koreans Christians' prayers are wasted. None of the prayers of God's suffering people are wasted. None of your prayers are wasted. For those who trust Jesus, there is no ceiling between us and God that prevents our prayers from reaching him. And there is no thought or prayer that we pray or think that goes unheard by our Heavenly Father. When 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxiety onto him because he cares for you, it's not speaking of some imaginary friend who comforts those naive enough to believe in him. It's speaking of God who is there, who knows all that we're going through and who hears every word that we utter and every thought of our heart, who cares passionately for us and who loves us deeply and who gives answers to our prayers in his time and in his way. But he answers our prayers in his time and in his way. And his answers might sometimes seem to us just as inscrutable, just as difficult, just as horrible, in a sense, as the questions we were asking him. That was the case for Habakkuk. What is this amazing thing that God is about to do, which no one will believe until they see it? Well, verse 6, God says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. God's response to Habakkuk's prayers is to announce the invasion and overthrow of Judah by the Babylonian Empire. This is devastating. (laughs) This is like... Somebody from 1930s Poland or France crying out to God saying, I'm having a tough time here, God. Could you do something about my suffering? And God saying, I hear you and I have a solution. Nazi Germany. I will raise up the Third Reich and have them invade and occupy your country. That should solve your problems. In case you think that might be an unfair comparison and wonder whether the Babylonians might be a a rather nicer, friendlier, fluffier invasion force. Uh, Just look at God's description of them. We've seen uh, already in verses 6 and 7 that they are ruthless, impetuous, feared, dreaded. In verse 8, their military outfit is compared to a terrifying bunch of fearsome animals. (laughs) God says, you think you have horses in Judah? Well, these guys ride horses that, uh, poetically speaking, of course, are faster than leopards, fiercer than a pack of Ravenous wolves. Nothing can outrun them. Nothing can fight them. And as their cavalry gallop headlong towards you, appearing from afar as if from nowhere, it'll be as easy for them as if they were a vulture swooping down to devour a corpse. In verse 8, the end of verse 8. You might as well be dead already for all the effort it'll be for the Babylonians to overthrow you, for all the fight you'll be able to put up. And what are the intentions of these Babylonians. Well, verse 9, they come bent on violence. 
The Hebrew word for violence here is Hamas. <laughs> Obvious contemporary resonances. The Babylonians are committed to violent, destructive modes of operation. There's no easy way with them. There's just the hard way. They intend violence. They intend exile. That's the picture of the desert storm in verse 9. A great wind that gathers prisoners like sand, taking them from their homes, scattering them across distant parts of the empire. (laughs) There's a, a snippet of good news, verse 10. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. Here you are, Habakkuk, you wanted to get rid of King Jehoiakim. (laughs) Well, the Babylonians will do that for you. Once the Babylonian sandstorm has swept through, Jehoiakim won't be seen for dust. But it won't just be him. All your fortifications will be taken, in verse 10. Because that's what they do, the Babylonians. They sweep through like wind, the sort of hurricane of a wind that will leave you like New Orleans after Katrina, devastated, torn apart, desolate. So there you go, Habakkuk. There's God's answer to your prayers. You wanted an end to the violence and injustice of Judah. Well, the bigger, more horrible violence and injustice of Babylon will put an end to it rather nicely. God's solution, it would seem, is more horrible than the original problem. He's responding to intolerable suffering by bringing about something even more unbearable. Hey, you've got a flooded kitchen? Well, don't worry, your house will burn down next week. Problem solved. You've got a a bad breakout of acne? Well, don't worry, I'll arrange for you to catch leprosy. So you won't be concerned about zits after that. What, what is going on here? Why on earth would God respond with such apparent overkill? If the extent of injustice and suffering was Habakkuk's problem, surely God's answer just makes it worse, not better. Now, there's one issue that we need to park and set aside for next week uh, because it'll be covered in chapter 2. The fact that God uses evil, guilty people like the Babylonians raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? How can God do that without being the doer of evil? Can it be right for him to punish the wicked in Judah by using an even more wicked bunch of people from Babylon? Those kinds of questions about God's goodness in using Babylon to judge Judah, uh, save them for next week. Uh, Because that is Habakkuk's next question for God. But for now, I want us to think about the issue that we started with, the extent of suffering. We said at the beginning that a little bit of suffering, a poke in the arm, doesn't remotely threaten our belief in God. But when we see a lot of suffering and a high level of injustice, it becomes harder to reconcile what we see with the goodness of God. Well, Habakkuk 1 challenges that assumption in a big way, doesn't it? In this case, God's answer to a lot of suffering involved more suffering. To get rid of bad, bad King Jehoiakim, he brought in insufferably evil Babylon. And we're left, surely, to reflect on how much bigger God's plans and purposes are than the little corner that we can see. God had a much bigger plan than Habakkuk could possibly imagine. His purposes for the Babylonian invasion 
were many and varied, and the Bible reveals many of them to us. Uh, they were there to judge Israel's long-term rejection of him. And for our, from our perspective, we can see lots of reasons why the Babylonian invasion was necessary to bring the existing nation, uh, nation of Judah to an end and prepare for the coming of Christ. But those explanations that we can see some of didn't make the experience any easier for Habakkuk or for his contemporaries. God's big plans were very hard for the people on the ground. Their suffering was pretty relentless and in many ways just got worse. But God wanted Habakkuk to know that it was all within his providence. God's plans and purposes for his world are huge. And often, it seems, a lot more suffering, more than we realize, is necessary for him to bring about the good which he intends. Which is to say that when we suffer or when we see others suffering and it seems unbearable and we cry out, how long, O Lord? God hears and he cares and he answers. But his answer might be, yes, I will relieve your suffering now. Or it might be, no, I love you and I will relieve your suffering one day, but for now it is necessary and you must trust me to carry it through. Or like the answer for Habakkuk, it might even be, your suffering is about to change in some ways for the worse. But you must still trust me, you can still trust me to carry you through. For I love you and I will relieve you one day. We have permission here to speak to God openly, personally, frankly, bearing our soul and our deepest concerns and our fears to him. We have permission to confront him like Habakkuk, saying, Lord, I just don't understand. This makes no sense to me. I don't understand why you seem to be doing nothing. But this passage does challenge us to keep trusting even when the answers we receive seem to be silent or even more painful. What extent of suffering could your faith bear? Could my faith bear? It's a question worth asking, isn't it? Uh, one of the greatest examples in my life was uh, my grandma. She was an amazing, wonderful lady. Uh, she had a rock-solid trust in Jesus. She had an incredible capacity to love others. And yet the last years of her life, many years actually of her life, were filled with constant pain. From rheumatoid arthritis, from a hernia that wasn't operable, from uh, an arm bone that was broken in a fall, uh, from nerves damaged in a stroke. Uh, on top of that, uh, she was blind for many long years. She had it really hard, really, really hard. Uh, now, in many ways, that, that's not an unusual story. Old age can sometimes just work out like that. Uh, you'll, you'll have seen that story repeated around you. And like many, towards the end, my grandma found it almost unbearable. And she would sometimes ask, why, Lord? Why am I still here? Why am I chair-bound and blind going through this in so much pain? How long, Lord? What is this for? And those of us who knew her and loved her would be heartbroken. 
And my grandpa prayed every day for her blindness to be relieved and her sight to be restored and never saw an answer to that prayer. And there were no real answers during her lifetime to those anguished questions of why. At least not answers that God had made known to us. But I I think that a year, um, well, just after she died, I think maybe I saw a hint of an answer. Just a hint. My sister, who isn't currently a churchgoer, uh, stood up at my grandma's funeral and said to a packed church, Grandma's faith was amazing. The way she just kept believing, kept trusting through all the suffering. And I know now that she's with God and she's all right. Now I don't know what God's going to do in the heart of my sister. But just maybe when my grandma finally got the chance to ask her questions to God face to face and asked why she had to go through so much suffering, just maybe his response might be something like this. There was somebody I needed to get through to. And the only way was for them to to see you go through that. And I know that my grandma would have been satisfied. Finally, she would have understood why she had, uh, why she'd been right to trust God, whatever the extent of her suffering. So can we trust God's goodness, even if the answer to our prayers seems to be God making things worse rather than better? Uh, Here are just a couple of examples uh, as we look to the future. What if, here in this country, we cry out to God about the difficulties in the Anglican Church? And God's answer to us is this. I'm going to raise up a militant atheist regime in this country, which will utterly destroy the Church of England. And they will scatter Christians underground or abroad. Can we keep trusting God? Believing that God could use even a regime like that in this country for his good purposes. What if we were to cry out to God about persecuted Christians around the world? And God's answer is this. I'm going to raise up Islamic fundamentalism across the world, even here in the West. So that Christians become a violently persecuted minority, even here. Could we keep trusting God in that setting? Believing that God could use even a rise of global Islam for his good purposes. And personally, what if we find ourselves diagnosed one day with cancer? Crying out to God for healing and relief. And what if God's answer is this? I'm going to allow the cancer to take hold. You will face a long period of uncertainty and suffering, after which it will take your life. What if that is God's answer? Can we keep trusting God? Believing that God could use even cancer for his good purposes. The same if your friend, your family member, your spouse, your parent, your child were to face the same. It is unbearable, isn't it? to contemplate such things. But this chapter challenges us to trust God's goodness, whatever the extent of the suffering. And God would say to us, as he said to Habakkuk, watch and be amazed. 
you can't see my plans in their entirety from your perspective, and some, sometimes that's just how things have to be. But trust my goodness. Trust my perfect intentions for you. Trust that all of these situations are in my hands, and one day, perhaps never in this world, but certainly in the next, one day you'll be able to understand. You'll be able to question me, not from a distance, where from time to time I might seem silent, but face to face, where I'll be able to comfort you and explain everything to you. And when you see the final unfolding of my plans, you'll watch You'll be amazed and humbled and delighted. And you'll know that trusting me was worth it. Let me lead us in a prayer. Habakkuk 3.17 Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Father, your plans are so often inscrutable to us. The experiences we have and that others have around us often lead us to ask questions that we have no immediate answers for. And yet, Lord, we know you as the good, gracious, loving God. The God of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, the God who sent him to suffer for us. Father, we pray that we would trust you, that we would trust that the God who would send his son to die for us and use that suffering, that calamity for such good, is able to use all other kinds of suffering and calamity for good. It's beyond us to understand how, Lord. We long for answers and yet we know so often they won't be forthcoming until glory So help us now, we pray. Help us to cry out to you as Habakkuk did, not in rebellion, but in trust, in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.